This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 262 and I have a wonderful game changer, uh, change thinker, Helena Norberg-Hodge on the show with me today. Uh, Local is our future is what I've titled this episode. Uh, Helena's career has been extraordinary in uh, pioneering the new economy movement. She's a recipient of the Alternative Nobel Prize, the Arthur Morgan Award, and the Goy Peace Prize for contributing to the revitalization of culture and biological diversity and strengthening of the local communities and economies worldwide. She has been a busy lady so far, and there ain't no stopping yet. Uh, A book I absolutely implore you to take a look at reading uh, over the summer or winter, whether you're hibernating or relaxing in between catch-ups with friends during this season, is Ancient Futures. Uh, She also wrote another book, Local is Our Future, which really not only tells incredible stories about the context of history and what it can help us know for where we need to go, Uh, but also in how we practically localise economy again, because that's a beast unto itself. You know, it's fine to say we need to do everything more locally, Um, but how do we actually practically do that? How do we ensure people get paid fairly? How do we ensure that transitions are smooth uh, and that no one's left behind? So there are a number of things that need to come into play in that discussion Uh, and Elena's just an incredible mind uh, on this subject. So I know you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. It's definitely another big picture conversation, uh, not shying away from the big issues as we didn't last week with Julian Cribb, which uh, <laughs> the feedback I got from that show was, I was equal parts terrified and hopeful. Uh, you're in for another bumpy ride of thinking and digging deep. Uh, realizing that nothing is black and white uh, and the truth and the progress is to be found in the gray as always uh, in this week's show. So I'll hook into that conversation in just a little minute, but I want to remind you, we are now coming to the end of November. We've had the wonderful uh, Helen Marshall, founder of Primal Alternative as our show sponsor this month, but not to give away cookies and um, breads and pastries, uh, all grain-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, but to actually share the business side of Primal Alternative. A lot of people disgruntled by traditional employment or maybe you've had children and you really want something a lot more flexible and you have a passion for baking uh, and a passion for community, uh, then becoming a Primal Alternative Primalista might be the thing that you want to look into. Uh, So for those of you who don't know what Primal Alternative is, it's a brilliant network of bakers. It's not network marketing. It's you buy a license and then you have your own business. You don't have to recruit people or anything like that. Uh, And um, basically what it means is you then become the community around you Uh, you then become their baker, Uh, beautiful alternative grain-free food brand uh, that helps make the transition easier. So for a lot of families out there who've had to navigate gut health issues uh, and uh, perhaps work on uh, neurodivergence, a lot of um, uh, challenges in being our best selves, you know, and I've spoken to so many people in the community over the years who have really felt a massive impact when they've ditched uh, traditional uh, refined grains from their diets and um, moved to more grain-free options. Um, Doesn't mean you have to miss out on everything. Everyone still deserves a little treat every now and then. It's just the treat is more nourishing and not harmful to the body, and that's always a big plus. But the granolas, the cookies, the pastries, and even the brownie mix that I recently launched with them uh, a couple of months ago, which I've had great feedback from um, many of you on, 
uh, are all just ways to help families who perhaps don't want to scratch cook everything, find it a little bit daunting when you're switching everything up in your diet for your family. And uh, of course, one of my favorite aspects of this is the localization of the food system. So Primal Alternative Bakers, called Primalistas, are purchasing local ingredients where possible, pesticide, herbicide-free, wherever possible, whole ingredients, no complicated uh, additives in your um, in your baked goods like they would be if you bought them at the supermarket. And often those raw materials that come from those baked packaged goods at the supermarket are traveling all over the world to become your cracker or your bread or your pastry. And not only that, they're coming from farms of monoculture, uh, which of course is damaging the soil and preventing the sequestration of, of carbon into the soil carbon capture. So it's it might seem like, oh, yay, cookies, but actually it's much bigger than that. And that's one of the things I love about this business. So with a Primalista license, you get the recipes, the resources to create a business that works for you and your lifestyle. So you don't get you don't have to bake 40 hours a week. It really does tie into what you're able to do and want to do. And the license gets you from A to B quicker to start your brand from much quicker than starting a brand from scratch. Uh, So you're plugging into a beautiful network, a family of people to support you, people who've learnt tips and tricks that work in their area, always sharing. And of course, you've got the wonderful Helen to steer you in the right direction with her support always. So what she's done is she's provided a, a bit of a a couple of things, actually, a wonderful bonus offer with a baking starter kit worth over $620. Uh, So you get uh, six primal alternative bread tins, compostable cellophane bags, 100 personalized labels, um, an apron, all the things that you need for your first few bakes, uh, and then $1,000 worth of digital bonuses to help you actually get going in your business. And of course, a um, coaching session with Helen. So you have all the tools, you plug into a great community, and she's got a free info pack to help you find out more about the Primal Alternative Business Opportunity, um, plus the amazing grain-free herb bread recipe that she's also included there very generously. So primalalternative.com forward slash info hyphen pack forward slash. I'll say that one more time primalalternative.com forward slash info hyphen pack um, forward slash. <laughs> I think I need to say it again. Primalalternative.com forward slash info hyphen pack forward slash. And you'll be able to download that free info pack. Uh, it gives you a stack of information uh, about what's included, what is, uh, what what it's all about. And I want to thank Helen for bringing this wonderful brand to the show. I hope uh, some of you out there have thought, actually, that's exactly what I need. One or two days a week baking supports my family, uh, gets us a few extra dollars, well, a few hundred extra dollars in the bank and um, allows me to be a support for my community for people who need this uh, service out there and need these goodies. So enjoy that, uh, enjoy getting to know it better, and let's now jump into this huge and uh, inspiring conversation with a true changemaker, Helena Norberg-Hodge. Enjoy. Hello, and how are you this evening? I'm very good, thank you. Glad that's, to be here. That's good, and I was literally uh, wolfing down but chewing well, just the practitioners listening, a beautiful local meal Uh, with my family just minutes before hopping on to record with you and I was reflecting on who I was just about to speak with and I thought isn't it perfect that I know the exact farmers of everything on my plate right now and uh, and just how good that really feels Um, and I think tonight we're going to unpack the subject of food what the future of food looks like and how we can take Um, the idea that you might know all of your food and where it comes from away from this privileged misconception of that's what posh people do, connect to good produce and organic things and all of that kind of stuff and really look at how we might reshape things moving forward. But before we dig into all of that, I always love to ask my guests uh, because of the, the huge body of work that you've now produced uh, in your uh, time on this subject, 
how did food initially become interesting to you as a topic or even as a problem that required some solution-based thinking? Well, that was definitely through experiences in Ladakh or West Tibet. It's a part of the Tibetan plateau that belongs politically to India and was one of the very, very few indigenous cultures in the world that had not been colonized or even developed or affected by the modern world. And so Ladakh and Bhutan, where I also worked, um, I got to know in the mid seventies and I was a linguist, went out as part of a film team. I was only gonna be there for six weeks, but completely fell in love with the people and the place. And I then speaking the language fluently, which I learned very quickly because I was just so in love with the people and the place. I witnessed the impact of what is essentially a colonial global economy where I saw in a very short time how food from the outside, food that had been transported for weeks was dumped in the local economy at an artificially low price, destroying the local market, destroying the market for local producers. So that was really the eye-opening systemic a situation, I saw the various factors, you know, that led to this. And that took several years to understand, but it was this shocking situation of seeing butter that had been transported for two weeks over the Himalayas, selling for half the price of butter from the farm, one minute walk away from the main market in the main city. So yeah, that was absolutely the eye-opening. Mm. And so from at what point did you decide that you wanted to play a part in uncovering the negative aspects of that? Because a lot of us see convenience and, oh, how handy that it we can get this food to those people out there. You know, we've been sold this narrative since basically World War II. So what initially started as a bit of a soldier's rescue um, and uh, food rescue message, feed the world and get this to the soldiers on the front and, you know, all that it kind of, they kept it, didn't they? They kept that narrative and thought, oh, we can use this moving forward. And later on, when you look at it uh, holistically, you see that what really happened was that the world wars were a lot to do with fighting over resources, including fossil fuels, and that after the war, the giant corporations that had been sort of part and parcel of the competition between the US big companies and the Japanese and German now had all these wonderful chemicals from fossil fuels that they had used for weapons that they actually turned on the land. And it was brought in with this belief that it was a way of producing a lot more food per unit of land but actually it never was. It was actually a way of driving people away from the land. And so what was being created was that people were replaced with technology and including the chemicals, both fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, and so on. So, but all of that I only learned later, you know, from Brazilian colleagues and from yeah, colleagues around the world. And what made me motivated, of course, it was, I was in a very different situation from people in the West. You've got to remember that here you had people who lived in one of the most difficult environments in the world, 12,000 feet high on a desert and with you know, no rain, basically, four inches a year. But they had these glacier-fed village fields that had to be you know carefully looked after irrigated and so on and they developed these amazing hugely sensitive adapted systems that worked so well and there was no hunger there was no poverty there was no unemployment so my experience there is very very different from what most people have experienced in the industrialized world and so many people when they look to the past you know they are looking at you know, they're looking at the potato famine in Ireland and they're looking at all kinds of problems that this modern agriculture seemed to solve when from my point of view, actually, those problems were created by that very same system. 
Mm, absolutely. And you use the word artificially low prices, the phrase yeah. artificially low. Yeah. I think this is a really good moment to unpack what that actually means so people understand yeah, well, I so love people to understand this. <laughs> I know. I've just written a whole book on it myself, so oh, I need you. Yes, I oh, have. Please get it out widely. Yeah. I, I intend to. to. <laughs> We'd love to help. So it's, you know, it was, became very clear, but from this unusual bottom line, where in order to see what, what I experienced in Ladakh and Bhutan, you'd have to go back about 500 years in most parts of the world. And then you see that the advent of the modern economy, the economic system started literally with global traders who were benefiting from the enclosures in Europe where people were driven off the land, their human scale institutions, which had been adapted to different regions and climates. And where people had developed structures for not self-reliance, but regional self-reliance, community reliance. It was never, you know, just one family out and, you know, plot in the middle of nowhere. It was, you know, community and regional self-reliance. And that was suddenly just torn apart as people were shoved through regulations by the elites into this new city of London, you know, in England anyway. And there you had a mess, you had a breakdown, you had poverty, you had illness, and very often our idea of progress starts there. And then we're told, look at this miracle of economic growth. We did what a mess it was. We were so ill, we were so poor, but we don't get to study what those communities looked like before elite traders had shoved them away from their right to have more localized knowledge systems and stronger local economies. And simultaneously those traders benefited from slavery and force, which included genocide and shoving people into giant monocultures for export, the cotton monocultures or coffee or tea or tin mining around the world. So mm. really, I think it's quite important now that we recognize from a social and ecological point of view, we need to go back to look at the foundations of the modern economy not to blame anyone, not to, it, it's quite helpful in that. Oh, absolutely. We need it for particular people, but we need to understand the system. Yeah. And we need to apply history. We never, we apply about 10% of our useful historic knowledge um, into future planning, but I don't know, you know, when you see people like Neil Ferguson give lectures, uh, applied historians uh, at, the, at the best end of the profession, you realise just how much we know that could help us steer things in a much healthier direction and yet we don't learn. Well, you see, again, when we say we don't learn, what I see is this unfortunate ignorance about the workings of that, those global structures, which have been so far removed, that my argument is that almost no one has been briefed to study that global economic system from a global perspective and from the ground up. So most of the global analysts are looking at the world through a haze of assumptions and numbers. They're not looking at it from experience on the ground. Yeah. And in my so case, right. I had this unusual experience and it was so black and white, you know, it was so dramatic that within a decade, this destruction of farming and, and food production is so fundamental because we all evolved deeply involved with that production and in whole intergenerational communities. And this pushing people away from that right to have the knowledge, the local knowledge systems and those local systems. As I say, it happened through force. And once that force had benefited the global players, they had such an advantage that they ended up amassing more and more wealth and power and after the Second World War, as you were saying, that's when this really took off in a major way. Because at that point, most politicians, most people assumed 
that this is absolutely essential that we now give global corporations more power, more freedom to integrate economic activity worldwide, to avoid another world war, to avoid another depression. Let's do this globalizing process. So they set up the World Bank, the IMF, and this process of trade treaties called the GATT, the Global Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And this is all, most people who were involved with that were doing it out of good intention. And yet what they were setting up was the right for these global corporations to essentially destroy local economies worldwide. And, and so what we've been looking at is really government policy separating the entire global population from the sources of their food. So longer and longer distances and all the time that's been leading to literally this crisscrossing of imports and exports of things that like literally milk out, milk in, beef in, beef out, water in, water out, all this stuff that could be produced and consumed locally, regionally, or nationally. And the prices are artificial because we had this supposed cheap oil supply after the Second World War. It was never cheap, it caused wars, it was disastrous, but it comes into the market at this artificially low price and makes it possible for these giants to benefit from lots of technology and energy and replace people. And the people were shoved into bigger and bigger cities. So I think if we could understand that that was a horrendous um, way to deal with already a fairly crowded planet, already signs that we shouldn't be polluting so much. But now when about 35 years ago, this new era of globalization was brought in with new bilateral and multilateral trade treaties, we're talking about a situation where we knew the planet was very crowded and that we needed to think about climate change. We needed to start looking at reducing pollution, but these policies actually accelerated. And that's where, you know, we now urgently need a turnaround. And yeah, and so what we have done in my organization for 45 years now is to try to put the word out and to support in both the so-called third world and the so-called first world, localized economies. And maybe just one more thing to say, in the non-industrialized world, this means supporting hundreds of millions of peasant farmers who are still actually producing most of the food that's consumed, but they're being threatened now by policies that will push them into AI-driven cities and they're going to be replaced with robots if we don't wake up soon. And to keep those robots running, we're going to be using more and more energy. Even when it's renewable, it's very resource intensive. And just Oh, yes. And there's the very real challenge with renewables around recycling of materials yeah. and the fact that many of those materials for those renewables also need to be mined and extracted. Exactly. Mm. exactly. Yeah. And you know, now, so the picture is people were turning into heroes, you know, like Elon Musk and mm. oh gosh, Richard Branson, who I actually met some years ago. But you know, they're, they're really um, pushing to go to Mars to fight over scarce minerals and to the bottom of the seabed. And then what's happening is that, in the name of carbon sequestration, big business are clear cutting forests to bung up window farms in Sweden where there's very little wind is no longer actually about producing energy. It's about carbon credits and profit for several multinational corporations. But in the real world, it's damaging. I mean, horrendously damaging. So, mm. so it's okay. So I think we should talk about narratives because uh, <laughs> Because what we, on the ground, ev average everyday people, what we are sold is the idea that to tread lightly on the planet 
Um, it's best that we do actually plug into this globalised food system and buy our strange processed soy-based protein nuggets uh, or, you know, um, synthetic beef as is coming uh, and that we get all the solar panels and we do all the things. And, um, and look, obviously, you know, when it comes to um, getting rid of the actual pollution aspect of energy production, in terms of soot and um, coal and it, that makes a lot of sense. But these other narratives um, and the recycling issue around um, renewables, I just think um, it's like it's been hijacked by people so big and then, you know, they then have all these brands who then have all these commercials on all the media outlets who then, you know, supply the experts for the Davos conferences and all those sorts of things. And what hope does the common person have going about their busy modern life to actually understand deeply these issues or better yet, how can we actually get people to see the, 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 the daily things that we can all do to perhaps re-empower our local economies, revitalise local economy? Uh, I know it's a massive question. It's obviously no, 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 something I, you've produced films. And, <laughs> yeah, you've yeah, produced really films and it. books and all sorts to, um, to educate people and uh, I'm making my way through those resources myself at the moment. Um, but I, I, I would just love to hear big picture thinking-wise some, some of the steps you'd propose. Well, I would say that number one, we're, we're desperate to get a message out, which is that don't shy away from the big picture because when you look at these giant global corporations, the immediate thought can be, oh my God, it's too big, we can't change it. And therefore people shy away from it. What we're saying is it's precisely because ordinary people are not looking at that that this madness is going on. We can guarantee, well, we can guarantee that people from both left, right, green, gender-focused, climate-focused, plastic-focused, animal-focused, whatever issues people are concerned with, we can guarantee that they will be, uh, they will feel a sense of relief once they understand that most of the crises we face are connected and that it requires looking at the big picture to feel a sense of hope. 100%. And there are a number of reasons for this. You know, one of them is if we don't look at the big picture, we're falling prey actually to lots of propaganda from big business. One of the most insidious bits of propaganda is that we're in this mess because most of us, particularly ordinary Westerners are the greediest, most horrible people. <laughs> we haven't been willing to listen to all the information we've had about climate. We have just shown that we don't care because we're not listening to what's being said to us. And then we're told, you know, these people, they just don't learn from information and they just, all they want is to just keep consuming and consuming. And that translates into Humanity, human beings are naturally greedy and aggressive. Now this is a really very depressing picture and it's most of all, it's also making most people feel so guilty. Yes, yeah, so very disempowering. So we're saying, please, please, please help to look at this bigger picture because we can tell you that you will not feel so guilty, will not see feel full of self-blame, nor will you feel angry because there isn't anyone to target with the anger. Because once you see the bigger picture, you see this unfortunate trajectory and you'll see that actually the people who are pushing this very tragic uh, caught uphill that is so wasteful, is so idiotic, is so nonsensical, the people actually pushing this to continue are much less than 1% of 1% of the global population. So then we're basically saying, if we keep refusing to look at the big picture, 
we are just so harming ourselves, we're continuing with the self-blame and we're continuing to allow a systemic degradation of everything we care for. We are allowing a situation where our young people are now already suffering from epidemics of depression, anxiety, addiction before COVID. COVID has exacerbated this, that all these trends were there to be seen before COVID. I agree. Yeah. yeah, and why? It's because the economic system is delivering fewer and fewer meaningful livelihoods in fewer and fewer big cities. And in those big cities from Beijing to Sydney to Melbourne to New York, the house prices are completely out of reach. It's creating an impossible situation for young people. And it's not because there's some natural shortage of housing. It's not because jobs are naturally concentrated in bigger and bigger cities. It's because of policies that we could all help to change if we would be willing to look at them. But in the meanwhile, I also want to say that our very positive message is also, if you look at the big picture, you will also feel quite a lot of hope at the number of initiatives at the community level, even in big cities, at the local level, that demonstrate how many people are actually doing very positive things, how many initiatives there are that demonstrate that people aren't these selfish, greedy idiots, but they're actually often quite intuitively beginning to build up the sort of economies that we need. And it's particularly around local food, you know, which we should talk more about. But so that's, so there's this, basically we're saying, don't hesitate to look at the big picture and then help to support or build this revitalization of local economies with a central focus on food. And then, you know, again, I could talk for hours about the incredible multiple benefits of the local food economies that even in Beijing, are so loved by people because it's answering this deep, deep archaic need in us to have yeah. those connections. Absolutely. Um, oh, so much we can talk about. I have I know. a million I questions. I feel like I we need to put on a three-day retreat, Helena. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so uh, the big picture and people needing to realise it. I do want to spend a tiny bit more time on this because I think one of the places people who care and even people who really start to do their research and attend some interesting online talks and, and go to events where speakers like you are there trying to help people see the bigger picture, I think they still feel like, but what use is it anyway with all these idiots in power? And, you know, we feel this huge sense of, melancholy toward the state of the average politician, the general sense that it's just a big boys club that promotes from within. Um, there's no diversity, you know, all of these. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you see this again, is yeah. such a difficult issue because there is another framing that could help. And that is to realize that policy change will not come about without a movement that demands policy change. So in other words, we've never had a movement for economic change. And this is what I'm calling, we need eco-literacy. And that's economic literacy linked to ecological literacy. We've had people from the left demanding a more equitable economy but even then, it wasn't in the shape of a, a, of a new economy movement. What is coming about now is a new, is new economy movements being created. But there too, I would argue that not enough of them are led by women and led by people of a deep connection to nature and to the two most important things we do as humans, how we grow our children, how we grow our food. Both of those activities have been turned into shadow work and women have been, you know, marginalized, left behind. Nevertheless, they are the leaders of the new economy movements, uh, the new local food movements around the world, but they're not yet the voices and the leaders in the new economy movement. 
And so in the new economy movement, too many of the men are just focused on technology, on internet currencies or some sort of magical techno solutions and not deeply eco-literate enough to take food seriously. I mean, I don't want to say that's true of all, all the men, but it's de there's definitely this need for more female leadership and leadership that's connected not only to the land, but there's this magical thing that happens in the food economies, which is that because it's answering such a deep need and because it has this, these archaic roots, people respond so amazingly well. And it's so whether it's the community gardens or the community supported agriculture schemes or the farmers markets or the edible schoolyards or the various projects, they help to rebuild intergenerational community. They help to connect people in a way that also answers the need for meaningful productive activity. So it's just, it is a sort of magic one that has been proven to be healing for addicts, for prisoners, for juvenile delinquents, mm. depressed people. So it's, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't um, sing the praises highly enough, particularly when you also realize, as we do, that most of these things are happening without any real support from government, without any real support from the media, and you understand that they are all little miracles that are going against the tide of this top-heavy system. It makes you just jubilant because they're still growing. They're still proliferating in this climate that you would say, no, it's impossible. So if you imagine just a little bit of help from policy, particularly policy at the local level, which is beginning to happen at the city level, the regional level, there's beginnings, you know, there's certain enlightened responses to the pressures from the movement. But we need more, we need to be talking more to each other about what kind of policies we want to pressure for. It's not the time right now to write to our members of parliament or whatever and say, please do this. It's much more a question of talking to the leadership in permaculture, in biodynamic, in organics, and talking to all those mothers who understand the importance of healthy food, talking to people who understand the importance of biodiversity, to come together with a bigger picture and demand some simple policy changes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talked about little miracles in, in, in despite the climate uh, Pardon the pun. And I, I even just witnessed a little miracle with a friend, a regenerative farmer over in California, who I had on the podcast, gosh, five years ago now, Paul Grieve. And uh, he took a huge plane that had been an extractive method potato farm monoculture and put rotational um, chooks and um, and pigs and beef on there and mixed veggie crops and really turned it into a biodiverse um, heaven, took it from 0.9% organic matter in the soil now already only five years later. I think it's up to, let me just not get it wrong, uh, over 3% now to, to achieve that in just five years. And you see this desert in 2016 in Southern California. And now in 2020, you see lush green cover crops. You see clouds, lots of clouds in the sky. And you I know, mean, this, it is a little miracle, isn't yeah. it? It's a little patch of a little and miracle know, and it's happening for me, everywhere. For me, the best example of this is that film, The Biggest Little Farm. Should really urge people to watch that. It's also in Southern California, completely destroyed soil. And we need to raise awareness about the fact that from the corporate world comes a lot of propaganda, which then said, well, they obviously had support and that wouldn't have been financially viable. No, it's right, because the huge monocultures for export are heavily subsidized by our government. So we have governments that are separating us further and further from the source of our food and creating these artificially low prices 
for the mass-produced chemical, toxic, transported, triple layers of plastic packaging, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's where you get what is naturally cheaper, which would be natural food grown locally without all the transport, without all the chemicals, would be cheaper if we shifted subsidies, taxes, and regulations to. Yeah. So a lot of these subsidies had their foundations in the World War II era where we had to feed the world. Um, uh, you know, there were quite a few established there, certainly in the US, and it seems like it became harder and harder for governments to actually reverse those in the, the subsequent decades. I know you have a much bigger um, view of some of the nuances and different things happening around the world. Um, how do we actually shift these artificially low prices and subsidies? I mean, because, you know, at the end of the day, there's some hardworking farmer with a business there that benefits from those subsidies. And we don't want, just as we don't want the coal miners to all be stiffed from jobs as we transition to fairer, more localised network-based economy, um, how do we ensure that we keep the workers on the land on side in this transition? See, now, again, this is, first of all, the big picture would show us very clearly that it's not workers on the land who are benefiting. You know, right now it's like literally investors. And we're talking about the city of London. We're talking about an algorithm sort of casino where the extraction is going to a few corporations and then, you know, a few individuals within that. It's becoming, you know, it's so obvious. I mean, how does this happen that in mm. America, three men own more than half the population? I know. We yeah. need to understand those structures and they to do with these policies. And whenever we've been promoting local food, you know, the argument is particularly that in the West, no, no, we should be buying our food from the poor Africans and the Indonesians and the Indians because otherwise they're going to be starving. But it's the opposite. They're starving because we're buying food out of their mouths. And the way that they're producing food for us is they're getting loans, so they're getting more and more into debt. And the winners are never the farmers. It's and nor the public, you know, the consumer. It's these giant global middlemen, and now particularly this financial casino. And to make the transition, whether it's in energy or food, we're not talking about a sudden boycott. You know, it's not possible to suddenly create these local farms and leave these other farmers who are working, perhaps for big monocultures behind because what we're talking about is a transition that gives those people who are engaged in food and farming an ability to transition in that direction and so really the benefits are, are huge and even for those people who are engaged in it, the big problem is that very often the farmers are resistant themselves they've been trained into believing that of course they've got to do standard products in bigger and bigger quantities. But then, you know, I've been told by several farmers that where we start farmers markets and we were working more directly with relatively small farms. I mean, some of them are a few hundred acres, but you know, in Australia, they're talking about these giant, giant farms. But they then start so appreciating the fact that the consumers they actually prefer to have a few blemishes because they know they use fewer chemicals. Yeah, exactly. It's not dependent on all this machinery where every avocado has to be the same size to fit the harvesting machinery, the, the packaging for the supermarket shelves and all this. So there's, there's such a win-win for working with nature, which is natural diversity, you know. And this is what's so important important time that the system our governments are now locked into supporting doesn't even benefit our governments anymore because it's so linked to this extractive casino that even our governments are getting poorer. And so, um, and in the meanwhile, for our entire countries everywhere, it's in our interest to start reversing 
these policies to allow for basic food security. And the minute you start shortening the distances between the farm and the consumer, you're beginning to create a market that demands diversification. So you're actually creating a market that works with the needs of nature. Whereas the other way, the longer the distances, you're promoting monoculture that is inevitably making it, even if you're organic, you need external inputs because it's so unnatural. Yeah, of course. And so how do we get around the fact that so few people own so much land now, though? Well, this again, you know, it's, we think it's often about the ownership of land, but with policy change, and I mean, there, there is just so many different ways that the policies need to change. One is it fundamentally, we want to support more people on the land rather than ever fewer, more, you know, what, we, what right now our taxes support, our subsidies, even in education, in R&D, in advertising, you know, corporations are even subsidized by governments to advertise abroad, you know, whether it's Campbell's soup or Coca-Cola or, or, you know, chemicals. So if we imagine shifting those subsidies in the direction that would mean healthier soil, healthier water, healthier food, and more meaningful employment connected to food production. <laughs> Sorry. Excuse me. Um, if, if we could you know, shift those subsidies, we could see remarkable healing. You know, you were talking about that farm in California in five years, the, what happened on the land. The small changes in the right direction would create, you know, not just healthier food, healthier so on, so but more meaningful and healthy jobs that more people want to be engaged in. And again, I can guarantee that in Australia, as well as in most countries now, there's an increasing number of young people who would like to farm. But as you were saying, the land prices and the marginal payment to farmers makes it very difficult. So again, small policy changes could make a big difference. But in the meanwhile, even before we bring those about, there's so much that we can do in every country now to support the local food movement that, as I said before, is just rising up from the ashes of this crazy system without any help, a lot of blood, sweat and tears, a lot of volunteerism, and also a type of subsidy from local communities because people love it. There, there are a lot of people willing to volunteer there are ways that middle-class people are subsidizing this by, for instance, being willing to pay a bit more so that people in the community who can't afford the fresh, organic, local food can buy it at a lower price. You even have in the US, you know, in several states, they now have food stamps for poor people. And if they buy at the local farmer's market instead of the supermarket, they get twice as much for the money, twice as many dollars wow. to support the, the local. That's encouraging. Uh, yeah, it's very encouraging. Mm. But it, again, it's, I don't know how, I know, it's, I know it's grown into several states. And in fact, someone who worked with us has been very involved with this. But um, it all needs the support of more awareness, you know, so more podcasts like you're doing. Um, yeah. Mm. And so a question that often comes up for a family, you know, you've got kids, you know that organic, biodynamic, various forms of regenerative agriculture are obviously the healthiest choice. We know that local is the healthiest choice. A lot of people do. But then it comes to tallying up their average week's shop for all their meat, veggies, nuts, seeds, yada, yada. And they go, oh, my gosh, I actually can't afford it. Is this, therefore, the responsibility of everyone and anyone who can even swap out one or two items um, in their budget? You know, is, do we start there by just saying everyone who can, that's the starting point, while we chip away at policy? Well, 
But again, remember to make policies is the is one thing, but the other thing is I sometimes think I would almost rather that people spend those few extra dollars to support a new local food initiative rather than going to buy at the farmer's market. In other words, I feel a, a concern about only asking them to spend their consumer dollars in that way. I, and above all, I guess I would say, if they only could know enough about it to realize how enjoyable and how healing it is in various ways, they might decide to join a community garden project, which also ends up being like a great way to spend time with the kids and maybe even with the grandparents and just so enjoyable. And it might actually mean they can come away with some really healthy vegetables, even for free, for having put in a few hours that turned out to be really good exercise. And so there are just these multiple win-wins from this. And yes, definitely where possible, you know, do try to, to actually shop in that way. But I guess we are seeing in our organization that what's happened in these last 35 years is there's been this big focus on changing the world through your individual shopping habits. And we feel there's not been enough emphasis on what can we do in our community when we come together. Mm, I love that. What can we do when we look at the policy level, but not in the conventional way, not by saying, oh, please, please, you know, whether left or right politics or even Greens, right now they are following the same path and supporting bigger and bigger and more trade and not supporting the localization we need. So there we need a different approach, which is to build up a movement that demands the change. So we recommend for people to, we sort of provide, uh, you know, sometimes workshops and we also have a local action guide and, and we, we recommend, you know, we try to leave people with five words and the first one is connect. And that is please connect with a few like-minded people to sit down and, and just not a huge long period, but to just discuss what might we do together to improve our lives personally, as well as do something about the state of the planet. And we feel we have this holistic win-win-win strategy that if they're just willing to just think a bit and change the I to a we, it suddenly liberates them and the whole process becomes more enjoyable. Oh, a hundred percent. I agree. Yeah. 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 And we are also, you know, I don't know if you know Gabor Mate, but I had, of course. Yeah. Well, I had a lovely long conversation with him for what we call our World Localization Day that we launched two years ago. And so this year I had a long conversation with him and he completely agrees with me about the important rebuilding of the intergenerational community fabric and how vital that is for our psychological well-being. So in this sort of connect, we also want to urge people to connect more deeply to each other as one of the most healing modalities to move beyond fear and anger and particularly the fear of not being loved for who we are. It's about actually being willing to be real and imperfect and vulnerable and even explain about whatever problems there might be in their life. But at the same time, as I say, it's also about looking at what could we do collectively to change it. And just the minute you start sharing some of that, you're moving into different territory and you're um, you know, as I say, you can be part of many of these initiatives without it being such a big burden. And it doesn't always have to be about spending mm. more money. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, you mentioned the word big burden, and I really do feel like people feel burdened by the state of the planet. And that then creates a paralysis, a lack of action, because we feel forlorn, really. We're like, there's nothing that I could ever possibly do that would be big enough. Absolutely. Um, and this is, the, this is our big task because, mm. you know, we're talking about the big picture and yeah. 
And people shy away from that because it just sounds too big. And yet it's, it, it, how to put it, it's basically that when you do look at the bigger picture, you suddenly see what a tiny number of people are, are being allowed to push the whole planet in the wrong direction, are allowed to make us all feel like we're guilty when in actual fact, it's these bigger policies that go back for generations and we just haven't turned the ship. And we're also saying you can start turning the ship at the local level. So you can actually do a bite-sized turning of the entire ship. Building up those lifeboats worldwide is absolutely essential now and it's essential for the long term. So it's such a win-win-win strategy and yeah. yeah. And I think when you make it win-win, people feel plugged into something bigger than themselves. Exactly. And a lot of humans are missing that at the moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And I'm so encouraged by what happened in COVID that even when people couldn't meet, there was still a clear pattern of community concern and community connection. Mm. Even when people couldn't meet face to face, they still showed concern over their neighbors and definitely a huge in, increase in interest in local food. Yes. All worldwide. Very Absolutely. Important. I mean, the simple act of baking bread just became yes. this phenomenon, you know, people taking control of, yeah. you know, yeah. a staple, let's call it, and, um, and learning how to grow veggies, the um, sales for seedlings and exactly. potting mix and uh, compost went through the roof. Everywhere too. Yeah. All around the world. Yeah. And, you know, it was also partly of people being able to slow down a bit and the whole community building that's happening through localization is also a slowing down. So even mm. when people shop in farmer's market instead of the supermarket, they have 10 times more conversations with each other and they enjoy the process. They actually take more time doing that because, again, it becomes this win-win of actually enjoyable social, social connections. The children are enjoying themselves and it's like the exact opposite of shopping in the supermarket. Oh, God, yes. So it's really, it's, once you have these lenses on, you feel so encouraged by really a lot of positive things that are happening not enough yeah. needs our support but it is there yeah and uh and it shall grow and i think uh, one of the things i talk about in uh, my book and i'll be sharing your work in the show notes so that people connect to um, things you've written and produced um, because they're incredible um, but I talk about, you know, everyone's fighting over meat versus beans. But at the end of the day, we have 60% of the average shopping trolley as ultra processed, long life, multinational food. And for me, that is like the elephant in the room <laughs> that we are just not giving enough talk to. And of course, it's not going to get traction because a um, media network that has commercials isn't going to allow a lot of chat about that kind of thing on there because their sponsors start pulling ads. And, you know, so you start to see very quickly why these very basic fundamentals aren't being talked about on a much larger scale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And that's also where the what we call big picture activism is so badly needed is that we do podcasts like yours that we try to show films in our local communities, that we realize, you know, part of that big picture activism, again, is partly not understanding the root cause of our multiple crises, that almost every crisis we face is connected to these crazy economic policies that go beyond left and right. And on the other side, we're ignorant about the multiple positive examples that are right under our nose. But we're not seeing them because we're not being told about them. We're not even being told to value them and look at them for their importance. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the, the big picture activism is sharing a lot of that knowledge. Yeah. And for me, what I've taken from this conversation uh, uh, towards the second half of it is the critical importance of community and really rebuilding connections 
you know, having one of those connections be uh, at the farmer's market or at the local community veggie patch and, and sort of building natural community into our urban areas. Absolutely. Mm. And it is probably, you know, one of the keys is also to understand that the system now makes us feel guilty that we don't have enough time. We blame ourselves that we're not spending enough time with our children or our parents. Or, and again, we need to be really aware that we're being pushed in this direction and that there is no natural scarcity of time, which was, again, in these traditional cultures I saw that had never existed, just like unemployment didn't exist. It's created by conscious policies, but because we're not conscious of the implication because it's been going on for so long, we're not alert to it. So part of what we need to do is before those policies have changed, be really willing to slow down a little bit, take a deep breath. And what we're saying is as you come together with other people to reflect on what can we do, you suddenly find that this process is enjoyable. So you're willing to take time for it. And we're, you know, we're urging people not to, you know, to just focus on, you know, reading and sort of this discussion and some of the more technical issues, but to take the time to also have a meal together, to sing together, to dance together, to really enjoy coming together. I've just now come from a meeting of an agroecology course that's taught here. And, you know, there are so many people now beginning to take these courses. There's so many people. Yeah, it's really exciting, people. isn't it? Yeah, we're really interested in this. And, you know, families with little children. And yeah, it's, a, it's such a fun, wonderful movement. Yeah, it is. And I think if we could write a prescription on our virtual prescription pad for people this week, I always feel like saying swap out an excursion to Westfield for an excursion to your local um, either farmer's market if you can't get access to or community veggie garden. Become a member and go to your first um, exactly. your first worker bee meeting. That's exactly what I would recommend. Mm-hmm. It's literally, yeah. I mean, and, you know, after a conversation like this, you realise just how powerful such a simple swap out of a couple of hours of our time oh. Yeah. It comes. Yeah. And mm. it becomes sort of addictive because, you know, once people start to experience it, they really understand how much happier they are and how, how different the children behave when they're out in those gardens or even, like I said, in the supermarket instead of the, in the farmer's market instead of in the supermarket. And yeah. Yeah. Well, that is a beautiful note to end on. I feel like I would love to talk to you for hours uh but we shall maybe have to do a little part two in the coming year yeah yeah, thank you so much for your work um I'm so inspired by what you do and I think if people start to put the impressive work of activists into everyday actions and remember that that's the critical part of um not just admiring it but actually how do we personify it in everyday life then we really do start to make a big difference yeah yeah but again I want to add do it do it together yes connection is so important and yeah and that and those deeper connections to others and to nature that that's what we've lost through a whole process of modernity commercialization speed and so the sort of slowing down to connect more deeply to others, to the plants, to the animals, to nature, is, is a journey of such enrichment that is also being supported by spiritual practices of meditation and so on. But it's in the Western world, we haven't paid enough attention to the sort of practical ways of really embodying that reconnection along with them more spiritual practices beautiful thank you so much for your time thank you thank you yeah hope to be in touch again 
Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at LotoxLife or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.